as we go through, again, looking at church history, um, we're moving through the Age of Enlightenment, coming toward revolutions, the Age of Revolutions, and so we're kind of talking about some seeds of revolution, and now we're talking about some kind of initial probings into revolutions, mini-revolutions, if you will. Um, we left off last time, 1715, the son of the Jacobite Rebellion is starting up. And i got to say the son of, because it's like a sequel, right? Because the original Jacobite Rebellion was with King James II, who wanted to come back to the throne, right? Very Catholic King James II, who wanted to take the throne away from the very Protestant William of Orange, that all the people in England said, please come be our king. I know you're Dutch, but please come be your king, because we didn't want a Catholic and we don't like James. And so everybody wanted, wanted William, and then... James had a rebellion against him. He lost this big thing in Ireland because he's like, oh, the Irish are Catholic. They'll support me. This will be good. This will totally work. And totally didn't work. Lost it big time and then had to retreat to France where Louis XIV, being decidedly Catholic, was absolutely fine to help out, right? And because Louis hated England. France hated England. England hated France. So... Louis is like, you always have sanctuary here. That's, that's the first Jacobite rebellion. And why is it called Jacobite? James is the English version of Jacob. Yeah, James is just the English version of Jacob. So if you're talking about the Jamesian rebellion, you're talking about the Jacobite rebellion. So we're talking about the sequel to that. This is literally son of James' rebellion. So James' son, James Francis Edward Stuart, offended because he didn't get to be king. When his little sister, Queen Anne, died, she had been queen because she's Protestant. When his little sister died, uh, he didn't get to be king because it went to the Protestant German guy, Georg, George I. So, if you remember from history class, there was a King George that we all said no to when we, when we did our revolution, the American Revolution. That was George III. This is George I, Georg. The first doesn't even speak English. But at least he's not Catholic, the English said. James is all disgusted. But he's also kind of homeless. Because Louis the Fourteenth died, finally, after reigning for roughly a billion years. And so he's got no place to go. And he says, so now, this, this is my time. I get to be king. Because nobody's going to want a German king. And I should have been king a while back. Surely this will work, right? Because surely it'll work. No, no, no. His main supporter is a guy called the, the Earl of Mar from Scotland. So in fact, sometimes they talk about Mar's rebellion. The same thing. So the Earl of Mar stirs up the people of Scotland. He's like, yeah, we're totally going to get those Scottish stewards up. Not those German Hanovers. No, no, no. We don't want Georg, right? We don't want, we don't want, no, I can't make my thing work good. Anyway, um, never mind. I apparently lost my ability to use my clicker. Anyway, we're totally going to make the, the, uh, yeah, that's the one I wanted. Not that guy. That's all I wanted to say. That's all I wanted to say. Not Georg. Not the House of Hanover. No, no, no. We are totally going to get the Stuarts back. These are a Scottish line. These guys speak English. Everything will work great. And they got support from King Felipe V of Spain who actually used to be Philippe of France, right? Totally French guy. But since he's now king of Spain, we've got to use a Spanish name for him, right? He doesn't really speak Spanish very well. Spanish people don't really like him very well. He's a Bourbon from, from France, through and through. But being from France, he's like, oh, this will, this will stick it to England? Totally happy with that. Yeah. Yeah, and he doesn't have to chin. Although it's a good size chin, it's not it's not a Habsburg chin. I mean, the Habsburgs, they got the long nose, big old chin, big old thick lip. Habsburgs. Bumballs. Nowhere near as inbred as the Habsburgs. He's got, so everybody in Spain's like, maybe we'll have you know, a whole new dynasty of, of kings. Who knows? So yes, they like that part. At least he's not Carlos. But they still keep having, they're still in the middle of some wars of succession. In fact, Philippe here ends up abdicating at one point to his son because they didn't like him and then he ends up taking the crown back again later. Spain is still kind of in turmoil. Don't me forget Spain for a little bit. For the next couple of decades, Spain's just going, I don't know. So, but they're happy to do anything that they can do to try to stick it to England. 
if I talk about the Jacobite Rebellion, most people in the United States don't know Diddley, or care, to be honest, very much. The only thing that they, anybody might know about the Second Jacobite Rebellion is what they know about a particular Scottish hero in the Jacobite Rebellion. Anybody know what this guy's name was? A guy named Rob Roy. Anybody ever heard the name Rob Roy? Okay. Did you saw the movie? Okay, that, that's... That's that's I awesome. remember it, but I saw it. There you go. His name is Ryder Rudd McGregor. What did you say, Lucy? Oh, he says he's doing well to remember he saw it. That's right, that's right. That's great music, by the way. Now, Robert Roy McGregor, the Roy in his name means he's a redhead. So it's literally Robert the Redhead from the clan McGregor. Anyway, Robert Roy McGregor is this Jacobite who even fought for the cause at the Battle of Glen Shield which the Jacobites lost. So you might go, well, wait, then why is he a hero? He's a, you know, everybody remembers him as this, like, Robin Hoodish kind of figure. He lost in a battle. Why, why is he a hero? He's a hero because of the story of what happened next. McGregor ran afoul of his landlord, the pro-Hanover, pro-English, uh, Scottish Duke of Montrose, and became this outlaw. Thus the Robin Hoodiness kind of thing. Because Montrose was being bad Rob Roy is being all dashing. That's the way that goes. Again, all this is immortalized in a book by Sir Walter Scott, but also in America by at least three movies. There's a silent movie, there's a, there's a Disney movie in the, like the 50s, and then there's the one that you probably saw, um, which had Liam Neeson playing Rob Roy. Yeah. Which, again, really good music. Okay. Um, well, I gotta say that, because and there's, a, there's a really good sword fight at the end, too. In the movie, McGregor is turned from this devout Jacobite, this guy who fought battles for James, all this kind of stuff, turned into just a simple cattleman. It's like, I'm just here to try to take care of my clan. I, I've got no political aspirations. You say, really? You, that's not what Rob Roy was like, but that's okay. That's okay, because he's a much more likable hero. He's just, he's just a guy out to, to make sure his family gets fed. But then this mean old Montrose is just a jerk. He's got it in for him. He's, he, he tries to frame him for things. Bad, bad, very Englishy kind of guy. And try to get him to denounce Montrose's rival, the Duke of Argyle, as a Jacobite. He's like, I want you to go around and tell everybody he actually is supporting James. And so we, we pull him down a couple pegs. Because remember, this is the middle of the Jacobite Rebellion. So... What I want you to do is tell everybody he's a Jacobite. If you do, then I'll get off your back. I'll pay your debt. You don't have to go to jail. All you have to do is, is throw this guy under the bus. Make sense? Politically, you understand how that's going? Okay. Now, there's a couple problems with this movie and its plot. And the main historical problem, beside the fact that in real life, Argoyle was nine years younger than McGregor instead of 26 years older like the actor was, that's a little off. <laughs> Wait, yeah. But the main historical problem is that Argyle is actually the commander of the Hanover forces in Scotland. So this whole idea of like, tell everybody he's actually a Jacobite. It would be like in World War II, say, I'm going to tell everybody that Eisenhower is a Nazi. No, he isn't. Yeah, yeah, he really is. No, no, he's not. He's obviously not. He's been leading all the forces against the Nazis. He really likes Nazis. No, he really doesn't. This is a stupid plan. If you know anything about history, this is an absolutely stupid plan. Do not learn your history from movies. I love movies. I love historical movies. Do not learn your history from movies. And yet, it's got really good music and a really awesome sword fight at the end. So, you know, it's not entirely bad. Anyway, it is interesting because they did actually have a really interesting relationship. There's a, there's a funky little thing that happened between Argyle and McGregor in real life. They stood against one another in the Jacobite Rebellion, but they stood for one another later on because they were both Campbells. They were both part of the same clan. So, actually, I should probably do this, because when you're talking about Scottish clans, you've got to use the tartans. Anybody know why these tartans got... Why do, they, why do they do plaid? What's the point of plaid in Scotland? 
Anybody know? What? It's camouflage. It's the easiest way to do camo. You just do it and you just color it in stripes. But from a distance, especially after it starts getting dirty and stuff, it actually breaks up the human form. It's excellent camouflage. Go figure. But so a good Scotsman would have this long kilt and this, forget the name of it, but this, this uh, thing that he'd use as a blanket. It's, it kind of looks like it's wrapped around him. And then at night he wraps it around him or it uses it as a cape on a cold day. Or have you ever seen snipers have these kind of suits with twigs and things on it that they call ghillie suits? That's a Scottish word. The ghillies were guys who would wrap their, their tunics around them, wrap their, their tartans around them, and then just kind of clump into a, into a, 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 a hump in the brush, in the sage and things on, in, the, in the highlands of Scotland, and you couldn't see them. And American snipers went, dude, that totally works. So we stole it. Anyway, but tartan. That's a nice Campbell tartan. Actually, that particular version of the Campbell Tartan is called a Black Watch Plaid, if you've ever heard. Never mind. Anyway, so they're both Campbells, which is interesting because even though they're fighting at opposite sides, they both see each other as part of the same subculture. Now, the Scottish clan system has been around for like well over a thousand years. So whether the Hanovers are in charge, or the Stuarts are in charge, or the Bourbons are in charge, ultimately, when it comes down to it, if you've got a family member, a clan member, that needs your help personally, who cares whether they're pro-Hanover or pro-Steward? That part doesn't matter anymore. Their clan membership supersedes everything else. You, you might be on two different sides in a battle. This is the weird, you got to understand the way the Scots think. Yes, I might try to shoot you in a battle. But then if you have a personal issue, I'm totally going to go to battle. I might have been shooting at you yesterday, but then the next day you come in and you go, actually, I could use a few bucks. I'm part of your clan. Could you help me out? you got to go, well, of course, sure. It's a weird system from our perspective. It makes total sense from theirs. So, Montrose, who fought alongside Argyle, right? They're both pro-Hanover. They're both out in the field leading battles and stuff. These guys on the same political side. When Montrose starts picking on Rob Roy McGregor, and McGregor goes to Argyle and says, could you help me in this personal matter? Argyle says, absolutely, without a second thought, of course, I'll stand with you against Montrose. Scotland. Alright? Now, part of this will help you understand why the, the, the clans stick together, why you can't, you just never can quite seem to, to take over Scotland. They always have this fierce sense of Yes, I'm part of the British Empire, but I'm Scottish first. You know, that, that sort of thing. Because you just never can quite get past this clan system. But it also suggests to you why you can never not get taken over by England. They, they're constantly changing alliances and things because of who's married to whom, who's part of which clan. They can never actually pull all the clans together and just think of themselves as Scotland for any particular length of time. Ireland had very similar problems. So you go, they will... Never be completely independent because they can't work together. And they will never be conquered because they will never be anything other than, first and foremost, their clan. So it works for them and against them. It helps to understand that when you look at things like Scottish independence. And you go, well, why didn't that work? Well, it's complicated. Anyway. Mar and Argyle fighting each other on the field. Mar saying, oh, Jacob, Jacob, Jacob. Argyle. No, no, no. Fighting each other field, Parliament goes, why don't we just arrest everybody? This doesn't have to be a big, huge war. So they just went and found all the people leading the battle, you know, all the political mover shakers, and went and arrested them. They go, oh, well, you could just do that. And it's over. They, they thought this was going to be this big, huge thing. But once you pretty much arrest all the people who are actually doing stuff, nobody wants to keep fighting. They're like, well, who cares? But the only one that got out of it was James, who tucked tail and ran and went back to France. He's like, well, I'll do this again later. And everybody else said, you better run. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, it, it was kind of a, as an end to the rebellion. Except that France didn't want him anymore. Because Louis XIV was perfectly willing to, to give him sanctuary. But the new king is Louis XV. Louis' grandson, who's five. 
And so Louis is sitting there, new Louis is sitting there on the throne. And of course, what happens if, if you're five years old and king, who runs the country? The person in charge of you, the regent. And his regent was his uncle, Duke Philippe of Orléans. Sometimes it's his mom, but this time it's his uncle. I threw you a bone, deal. So it's his uncle, Duke Philippe of Orléans. And he says, you know what, James? I don't know how to put this delicately, but you're a loser. I mean, literally, you, you just can't seem to take... You had everything going for you, and then it just fizzled. You didn't even lose in the field like... Well, it was a gallant effort. It just fell apart. You're kind of a political embarrassment. We don't want you in France. Which is... Ooh, that was harsh. Pick on poor France for being lame. Um, yeah, you can take that everyone. Anyway, luckily, we have Pope Clement XI. We've seen him several times the last couple of weeks, right? Pope Clement XI, who I described to Alex yesterday as the Pope who makes every decision incorrectly. Not necessarily an evil guy, just everything he does is wrong. The Jesuit's going, man, we're totally rocking it in Asia. And he goes, yeah, stop it. But, but we're totally rocking it in Asia. People are coming to know the Lord. This is great. Yeah, don't do that anymore. That's this guy. Pope Clement says, you can come to Rome because you asked me for help before and I didn't do diddly, but I will at least say you're a good Catholic. So come live in Rome. Which James does. He's like, fine, 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 I'll go to Rome. That, that's where his son was born, Charles Edward Stuart, in 1720. Again, you may or may not know, he's got a little nickname. Anybody want to guess what his nickname is? You may or may not have heard of it. Probably heard of it. In Scotland, when you want to talk about somebody being a cute kid, you refer to them as Bonnie. And so he's Bonnie Prince Charlie. And, 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 and how many people have ever heard the, the term Bonnie Prince Charlie? Okay, good. But Bonnie Prince Charlie, it, it, the Scottish still refer to this guy. They, make, they write songs about him. They still talk about him as being, oh, Charlie, oh, our guy. This is our guy. So, well, some Scottish kicked his dad out. Some Scottish fought for his dad. But this guy, Bonnie Prince Charlie, that's their guy. This is the poster child for Scotland. So, you're going to hear about Bonnie Prince Charlie again sometime. Anyway, 1725. The Campbell clan, under the Duke of Argyle, institutes a particular group to help defend Scotland from more insurrections. They're like, all right, we need a standing, like, special forces militia. We're going to train these guys and train these guys and train these guys. They're going to start off from the Campbell clan, with a couple other clans, but primarily Campbell. Anybody know what the Scottish special forces are called? I've already referred to the their name earlier today. A group called the Black Watch, from which we get Black Watch plaid, right? If you want to talk about British Special Forces, I and mean, there's the SAS, they do some fun, but if you want to talk about like the really, really tough guys in the British Army, even today, it's the Black Watch. When, when the Germans would hear that the Black Watch were fighting a particular battle, they'd get really scared, because they're like, well, these guys are nuts. I mean, even today, they'll run into battle wearing kilts with bagpipes playing. And they're crazy intense. <laughs> yeah, well, they, they like to think of themselves that way, I'm sure. They don't even have to wear crazy, crazy colors. What do you mean? Like, the other, like, the Norwegian. The Swiss. Yeah, no, they don't have to do that. But these guys, no, they don't. But these guys are crazy tough. But Black Watch, like I said, if you notice, that's a Campbell tart. So this is why. It's because uh, Campbell, the Duke of Argyle, started him up. But anyway, crazy, crazy tough guys. Um, Stuart Granger, classic swashbuckling film actor of the 1950s and stuff, was Black Watch in World War II. So if you see him running around fighting people with a sword, you go, oh, he looks like he's really tough. You go, yeah, he really was. So, little things. Okay, anyway. 1718. Uh, New Orleans is founded. Remember, there was Queen Anne's War, and I told you Queen Anne's War is crazy important, really, really big. So to try to stem off continued situations like that, because if you remember, the British had like 250,000 people in cities and forts and stuff, and the French and the Spanish combined had like three, 4,000 people 
with no appreciable cities, just a whole bunch of forts and fur trappers. Uh, okay, that's why we totally got crunched in Queen Anne's War. We're not going to do that again. We want to build up our holdings. We want to get some colonial population here. We want to build up some cities. So the Duke of Orléans, who is in charge of France, says, I want a city. I want somebody to build me a city right here on the mouth of the Mississippi River, like the most important little port down here to the south. We control it. I want to continue controlling it. I want a fort there. I want a city there. So, they send an expedition under Jean-Baptiste Le Moyne, who builds a city and names it after the Duke of Orléans. Well, specifically after his hometown of Orléans. And he calls it La Nouvelle Orléans. New Orleans. That's why it's called New Orleans. Just like New York was named after the Duke of York, who was in charge of things going on there. And he becomes the governor of this whole purple thing. And, which sounds like crazy impressive. You go, oh, wow. That's massive. He's the governor of all these. It's like, yeah, it's like 12 people there. There's all over these places. There's not that many people yet, but it's all Lemoyne's territory. Pardon me? Oh, no, he's totally the governor of the Indians, too. They just, the Indians may not realize that, but Lemoyne's in charge of them. Kind of like when, when the Americans, when the English kept running into new American tribes, they're like, by the way, your king's name is George. He speaks German. And the English go, what's a George? What's a German? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it's like, oh, by the way, this part is Spanish and that part's Portuguese. You just go, which part is Japanese? You know, we, we didn't, no, 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 they get to be under their houses. But this is significant because for the first time you have um, a city, you have civilization. Instead of just a bunch of fur trappers, instead of just a couple of outposts here, they're actually building a modern fort. You actually have civilization there in France, in the New World. So this kind of changes a little bit of what's going to be going on here. This is going to start becoming more prime real estate. This place of Louisiana named after Louis. And they also control something. Yeah. I mean, so when you control something, you defend it, you set taxes or whatever. Like, you, you decide what's going on there, so it's more important uh, than just like, hey, what, what the people live together. It's like, this, mm -hmm. is, this is ours. Exactly. And they control the mouth of the Mississippi, which is going to be kind of big, which means that they're also going to try to build some new towns along other riverways. So, like, you get cities like Peoria along the riverway. What? Joliet. And Joliet. And then a Pure Cour. Well, technically, that's already been founded. There's already that Fort Brokenheart over there. Uh, but, um, which is what Creed Cour means. But um, uh, then a Peorian goes up eventually and founds the city of Chicago, also on a waterway. The idea being you, just, you, you try to control those waterways. Anyway. 1718, a guy named Lischer attacks pietism in Germany. Lischer is this Lutheran pastor in Dresden, but he also teaches at the University of what? He's making a snarky. He's making a snarky. Well, I, I think it's appropriate for him. He taught at the University of Wittenberg, and this means something special to Lutherans. Why? What was what happened at Wittenberg? Well, that weren't, but specifically, that's where originally. Luther pounds his 95 theses on the door of the, of the church there in Wittenberg, which is like the community bulletin board there, back on October 31st, 1517, so 200, or, yeah, 200 years earlier, starting the Protestant Reformation. Luther <laughs> liked to speak and teach against the most heinous, vile evil of his day, which was pietism. Clearly the worst thing imaginable, right? Oh, yeah. Well, again, now you understand the snarky face. Because that's what he, an amazing number of his sermons, that's what it came down to. Again, let's remind ourselves, who are the pietists? Who do they follow? Philip Jakob Speiner. Very good! Philip Jakob Speiner, who's a different German Lutheran pastor. Because remember, the people you hate the most are the people who are kind of like you. Not exactly like you, just sort of like you. Yeah, those are the worst kind. If they were nothing like you, they would be an oddity, but they're the kind of like you. Those are the people you want to hate. So he's kind of like a uh, leisure. But he says a good Christian should strive to actually live a pious life. You should try to live it out. He wrote a book. Uh, Pia Desideria uh, uh, saying um, this is you should you should try to 
connect with other people for Christ. You should try to read your Bible for Christ. You should try to live out Christian love on a daily basis. You should live in peace with your fellow man. Whatever the Bible says, you actually ought to try to do that. And Bush goes, that is evil. Evil talk. So in 1718, he compiles his own Antipietist articles from this magazine that he wrote called Timotheus Berenus, which means the real Timothy. I'm the real pastor, and this guy's a bad pastor. I'm a good pastor. Compiles it into the complete Lusher archive of why they're wrong. Why do you think he thought that they were so horribly dangerous? What is so horribly wrong about pietism? Actually try to live your faith out. Actually try to live like a Christian. If the Bible says something, you ought to do that. Why is that evil? People are deciding for themselves what they think the Bible is telling them to do. There you go. He's like, they're totally focusing on the wrong things. First off, it's disorderly. That It's chaos. Scripture, tradition, they're very clear that there are specific things you're supposed to do in specific ways at specific times. You, as an individual, don't get to decide what constitutes worship. You don't get to do that. For the individual to decide to do that, that's just chaos. That's not your job. Can you understand where he's seeing that that way? Where he's just like, the, the clergy is supposed to control this. Church tradition is supposed to control this. You can't write a new song. You can't pray your own prayer. That is wrong. Secondly, that undermines the role of the clergy. That's the whole reason that they're there. I mean, there's all these different means of grace. You seem to think that you can do something to the glory of God, but how can you take communion, which is how you are, you remain saved? How, how do you do this, this means of grace, if, you are, if you're just trying to do it yourself? The only people who've been in minister communion are pastors. Are you saying that you can have communion without a pastor? Are you saying that you can take communion without the church structure? Are you saying communion is just for remembrance? It's not something that that, that creates or compounds your salvation? As long as the pastor blesses it first, then you can take it without That's right. Somebody even asked me one time, they're like, do you bless it? And I said, well, I always pray before you. Do you bless it? Where are you getting with this? Do you use the word bless this so that the elements become something different and change so that they become holy things so that they have magical powers, so that when we take communion, it conveys grace upon us. I'm like, no human being can do that. I'm sorry. No. In that case, no, I don't bless it, if that's what you're talking about. I don't, I don't have the ability to convey magical powers. If I did, I would teach my dog how to talk, because I'm forever trying to get things through to him, and he's never really listening. So... He's like, you're, you're, you're disregarding the pastorate. You're emphasizing the heart instead of the sacraments. The human heart, by definition, is flawed. It's, whole, it's, it's completely sinful. But the holy actions of the church, which were created by the church and were created by scripture, by definition, are always perfect. If you rely on your heart to follow God, you want to get your heart right, then you're trusting in something that's inherently flawed. If you put your trust in communion, if you put your trust in uh, the various liturgies of the church, those things, by definition, are always right. Therefore, if you emphasize getting your heart right with God and you de-emphasize the, the saving action of the various sacraments, which are the supports of your salvation, the sources of your salvation, then you're actually drawing away from God instead of closer to Him. Again, totally disagree with this guy, but do you see where he's coming from with this? If you actually believe that it's the, the hoop jumping that itself does save you, then he's saying you're trusting, instead of trusting in the hoops that are never wrong, you're trusting in your heart that is frequently wrong. Now, was the other guy... Uh, Spainer? Philip, Jakob Spainer, yeah. Yeah, was his, was his book saying all of that? Not really. No. So, yeah. so I was like, he's, so this guy is making an argument against something that's really wasn't. Well, the Pietists are kind of moving. When Spainer's saying, you really got to focus on your heart, you really got to focus on getting your heart right with the Lord, following God in your everyday actions, there are Pietists that were going, well then, 
why is some of this other stuff so crucially important? And so, so yeah, some of the stuff is where the pietists are moving to, but it's not necessarily stuff that Spainer himself was, was saying. Um, he also says, trusting the human heart leads to imagination, and that's bad. Uh, it allows the individual to decide for themselves, uh, leading to what he says, quote, the excessive freedom which one allows to the power of the imagination from which finally comes the rule of fantasy, which is the mother of enthusiasm, unquote. Which, the word enthusiasm, if you remember, we talked about this, at that time is being used for fanaticism. You, you, take, you take all the wrong things way too seriously. Instead of saying, I'm going to take the role of pastor seriously, I'm really going to take the role of jumping through hoops in the various uh, disciplines of the church seriously, instead, I'm taking things like doing my own personal Bible study seriously. I'm doing things like having my own prayer time seriously. All the wrong stuff. And you're taking all that way too intensely. You should not get to decide that stuff yourself. That leads to mysticism and a, and a love for spectacle. When you leave religion in the hands of unlearned individuals instead of the clergy, when you emphasize individual prayer and the desire to be led by God, then by definition, you leave the door open to be led by fantasies and being drawn to extra-biblical, mystical things. And i got to admit, he's got a point here. That, that, that now you can still be led to extra-biblical things within a church context, can't you? I mean, technically, the way we do communion is not the way the Bible describes communion. I'm not saying we do it wrong, but there's nothing in the Bible that says, make sure everybody gets a tiny chip of cracker and drinks grape juice in the smallest cup imaginable. And then it's a very stylized thing within a service. Is any of that ever the way scripture describes it? No. No, it's, it's, a, it's a feast. It's a meal that everybody eats together as the meal itself is an act of worship. So what we do is a highly stylized version of a stylized version of the Seder. I'm not saying it's evil. If I thought it was evil, we wouldn't do it that way. But it isn't the way the Bible says. So it's interesting that he's like, when you go, when you get out of the Bible, when you get out of the, of the church structure, now you're getting into extra-biblical ways of doing things. You go, well, technically, 75% of our tradition is, by definition, extra-biblical in, in what it does. It doesn't automatically mean it's wrong, but it does have a point that if you're trying to be led by the Spirit, if that's where you go to, then you open yourself up to saying, I'm, I'm looking for the mystical, I'm looking for the spectacular, I'm looking for the fantastical. And you tend to be drawn to what is new and exciting, as opposed to what is traditional and stale by your interpretation. Again, he's got a point. I'm not saying I agree with him, but he does have a point. Where are you guessing that? Um, I've heard this argument before. Yes. It was from John MacArthur, and it was against the charismatics. Yep. And again, I would sit there and say, something to be said for that. I'm not saying that the charismatics are all wrong. I'm not saying that it's dangerous, it's bad. I'm just saying, having, having been involved in, in Pentecostal groups in college, I've seen people do exactly this. It's like, well, who needs the Bible? I've got God's leading in my life. And you just go, well, I think you've missed the point. It's even worse than throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I mean, you've, you've missed the whole point. All of this is supposed to be grounded in the scripture. So I, I get what he's saying here, even though... He's saying it in an alarmist way, and in a context where I'd say, I, I, I think you're missing what these guys are trying to do. He says it ultimately leads to works orientation. If everything that you do should be about you actually living out, if the health of your relationship with God is dependent on what you actually do with it, are you actually living with it? I mean, are you being Jamesian in that you have a living faith? Well, then it's all dependent on what you do. And it all depends on you doing it better and better. Till you get perfect at it, which you'll never be able to do. Again, I disagree with him, but I see where he's going with this. And again, I will even say, yeah, I've seen that happen in people. I've seen people actually move into a tacit works orientation with things. It all matters about how good I can keep being. No. What you do really matters. But it's not like, if you're just not quite good enough, God will withdraw his grace from you. So he says... In general, pietism abandons this wonderful, proper, healthy, biblical theology to embrace this warmth of heart, this, this sense of, oh, I'm just going to love, and that's going to lead people astray. And I sit there and I say, oh, I'm sure you've totally missed the point of what Spainer was trying to get at. Now, what's interesting is, this is crazy timely. 
Even this week, Orpha asked me about uh, an article in last month's Covenant Companion. Anybody ever read this Covenant News? Okay, last month's Covenant Companion, John Phelan, who's a high covenant mucky buck, um, wrote an article about why our pietist roots are still very important, and he slammed the Lutheran, historically Lutheran emphasis on this whole proper doctrine thing. It's like, <laughs> proper nothing. You just need love. And what he says is, a rigidly correct theology that didn't produce a warm heart and practical Christianity was sterile theology. Stillborn, useless theology. Spainer and his disciples founded schools and orphanages and factories and engaged in spiritual and social renewal. They bypassed the fortresses of Lutheran orthodoxy and went right to the people with the love of Christ. They were both loved and despised for this. And you guys go, you guys could read that article and say, oh, I'm totally on that. I know what he's talking about. I know what he's talking about with these Lutherans. I know what he's talking about with Spainer. But what Phelan says is, this lack of focus on, quote, correct theology, unquote, is precisely why the covenant has been able to react to social changes and social situations quicker and better than other denominations. Because we say, who cares what the correct theology is? How do we show love to people? Now, do you see why we're talking about this in class? Do you sit there and you go, even within our denomination, this is still a question. Do you try to make sure that you have correct doctrine? Who cares if it's loving or not? Correct doctrine. Sure. Or do you say, who cares if you have correct doctrine? What is the most loving thing to do? Which of those should you do? Either one could lead to the other. Either one could, I would argue either one does lead to the other. Go ahead. Hey, there you go. There's a thought. Well, yeah, you've heard me say before, if you are not loving people, doesn't 1 Corinthians say you've already got your, your doctrine wrong? If you're not genuinely loving, you've missed the point of what you're trying to be doing. Well, it's, and, I mean, it's, it's loving just if my daughter can time out whether she likes it or not. It's not it's loving is not getting me out of the cold. It's the truth. And Sarah, Sarah has a cold. Do you have a cold? Let's pretend you have a cold. Sarah has a cold, so I need to give her a lot of coding. I don't have any cold medication in my pocket, but I do have a lot of codeine. And that'll help with the cold, right? No, no, but I want to help her. I want to love her. You love her with the correctness. That's the loving thing to give her, right? Help her with what actually helps her. So I sit there and I say, if you've got correct doctrine but no love, you don't have correct doctrine. If you've got love but not the correct doctrine that you're bringing, it's not loving to, to, to give that to them. But it is interesting that this particular dichotomy of discussion is still going on. And specifically, between the Pietists and the Lutherans, for crying out loud. This is 300 years old, we're still doing it. The exact same argument. Wacky fun, that. Speaking of argument, anybody ever hear of Voltaire? Good old French guy. He attacks Christianity in France. He's born Francois-Marie Arouet. Educated by the Jesuits. Yay, everybody goes, yay, the Jesuits rock. Groomed by his father to be a lawyer. He's going to be a professional man. It's going to be great. But he's like, I don't care. I want to be a writer. It really is. It's like that. It's that whole teenage. I want to be a writer. I'm a poet. I'm a playwright. I'm a snarky social commentator. And that's the way he saw it. He's like, I want to be a snarky social commentator. That's what I want to do. I want to get in people's faces, make them chuckle, and make fun of them. That's what I want. In fact, he was so disgusted by his father's lack of support that he says, I am no longer... Francois Marie Arouet, never call me that again. Call me Voltaire. His creation, this anagram of the Latin version of his name. It's like, just mix all the letters around. I've got a whole new name. That's fine. Well, what's your first name? No, it's Voltaire. Call me Cher. Cher. Call me <laughs> Prince. Call me Madonna. Beyonce. That's it. One name. Boom. Nothing else. For instance, one of his, because he loved being snarky social commentator, one of his first published poems made fun of the Duke of Orleans for his devotion to his daughter, Louise Elizabeth, saying, oh, that's incest, and starts talking about how they're incestuous. She actually was really, really sick as a child, and Philippe, like, personally nursed her back to health. Extremely devoted dad. So, obviously, incest. <laughs> you know, Philippe didn't appreciate that. Go figure! The guy 
guy running France may not like being made fun of like that, especially if you're making fun of the fact that he loves his daughter like that. <coughs> so Voltaire spent the next 11 months in the Bastille in, the, in prison because people in charge don't like it when you make fun of them like that. But in the Bastille, he wrote the first big hit of a play of his called Oedipus, which is about royal incest, right? <laughs> Actually, since this is a classic, uh, Philippe couldn't couldn't pick on him for that. He's just like oh, okay. the French equivalent of oh, okay. Voltaire's a huge fan of Isaac Newton, the guy that we've been seeing over here in the corner throughout the Enlightenment. Big fan of Isaac Newton. Wrote a whole bunch of books about Isaac Newton. Wrote books about his uh, about his work with optics. Wrote historical books, all sorts of different things. But he also loved deism. Isaac Newton's deism. Do you remember when we talked about deism? What's deism? Well, that's like more of a dualism. That's pantheism. Well, there's a big God, but God is the earth and everything. There you go. Well, that's a little bit pantheistic too, but yeah, there probably is a God, but he doesn't care about you. He is completely distant, completely unreachable. Yeah, there probably is a God, probably started this whole mousetrap game going, and then walked away. He doesn't care about you at all. You can have no personal relationship with him. So you shouldn't try. Really what you should try, get away from that whole superstitious religion thing. You should just ignore that whole relationship with God thing. Spainer's a goofball. Litzer's a goofball. They're all goofballs. What you really want to do is just be the most rational, decent person you can be. How does deism still affect us today, do you think? If you're a smart person, if you're a learned person, if you're educated, then of course you're not going to believe all this miracle junk. Just look at the parts of Jesus that say, go help people and be a, a decent person. Go be nice. Forget all the other stuff. Just, just be good. And you go, well, how do you even decide what constitutes good? Well, your own personal sense of that is fine. Just be rational. You have a particular disdain for Christianity. Technically, Pardon me. Technically, he encouraged tolerance toward all religions, well, except Judaism and Islam, because they're crazy. To Voltaire, he's like, yeah, they're all a bunch of, they're just nuts, and they believe weird things, and plus they're inferior racist, so who cares what they think? But we should exude tolerance toward everybody. He loved Hinduism. Still don't know exactly why. Loved Hinduism. Don't get it. In fact, in a letter to Friedrich II, Frederick the Great, he said, the religion of Christianity is without contradiction the most ridiculous, the most absurd, the most bloody which has ever infected the world. Your majesty would do the human race an eternal service by destroying this infamous superstition. Get rid of Christianity. He even blamed Christianity for the fall of Rome. He's like, every time Christianity gets its, its, its teeth stuck in a culture, that culture fails. It falls apart. It is the absolute antithesis of the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment is all about reason. Christianity is all about mysticism and magic. It's horrible. Fun quotes. The first priest was the first rogue who met the first fool. That's what priests are. They're priests that are con men that work with idiots. The truths of religion are never so well understood as by those who have lost the power of reasoning altogether. You'll notice that in all disputes between Christians since the birth of the church, Rome has always favored the doctrine which most completely subjugated the human mind and annihilated reason. All good Christians glory in the folly of the cross. Nothing could be more contrary to religion and the clergy than reason and common sense. Do you get a theme of what Voltaire felt about Christianity? Specifically about Christ. He said, about Jesus himself, he said, curse the wretch. In 20 years, Christianity will be no more. My single hand will destroy the edifice that took 12 apostles to rear. First of all, that's no, 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 no. He's What about what I've said so far about Voltaire would suggest that he's got ego? But, but the first four quotes, I mean, if you, I feel like if you dumb down the language a little bit, like, that's would be a lot, a lot of people would say those same things. Absolutely. Just not as eloquently as he but that was his whole thing, is, I can be snarky if I'm funny. By the way, there's like a whole literary subset of that when you get into the 19th century. Uh, people go, he, 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 Oscar Wilde made a career out of that. And yet he's also famous for saying to a, to a religious friend of his, I detest what you write, but I would give my life to make it possible for you to continue to write. 
which is paraphrased nowadays usually as, I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. You get to say it, but I think you're an idiot for saying it. Or he's the one that said, if God didn't exist, it would be necessary to invent him. Because mankind has this desperate need to feel like there's something bigger than them out there. Something that they can then use to hold over other people. In fact, he says, you are, he says, you're desperate to create a religion. Every sensible man, every honest man, must hold the Christian sect in horror. But what should we substitute in its place, you reply? Well, I tell you, a ferocious animal has sucked the blood of my relatives. I tell you to get rid of the beast, and you ask me, well, then what would we put in its place? Like, this is horrible. Of course you shouldn't hold on to Christianity. And if you get rid of Christianity, you just put something else stupid in its place. That's his take on things. He was so roundly disliked by everybody that everybody in power and so roundly loved by everybody reading all this stuff that Louis XV officially had him banned for entering Paris in 1755. He's like, no, you do not get to do that. You do not get to come here. I don't want you even within the city confines. So Voltaire just bought an estate in Geneva and went and lived with his niece and had sex with her and basically said, yeah, it looks like we're married because he thought she was cute. I don't think she's that cute, but he thought she was really that cute. Well, that's, well, yeah. Isn't it ironic that he's sitting there going, make fun of it? But he's like, I don't care. Whatever makes you happy. In fact, he says, God invented sex. Priests invented marriage. Uh, he joked about uh, only a religion would be stupid enough to, to call virginity, uh, virginity a virtue. He loved the fact that he had tons of mistresses and things. Did whatever he wanted to. Made himself happy. That's what life is all about. When he died in 1778, it had been the toast of Europe for six decades. Generations had grown up thinking that it's cool, it's funny, it's intelligent to slam Christianity snarkily. That changes things. It changes how people perceived Christianity. It's becoming this medieval religion. And all the people who are really in the know realize how lame this is. Again, do you see how that influences even today? Subsequently, people argued that part of the reason why the French Revolution was so extremely bloody and extremely malicious compared to like the American Revolution is because they actively removed religion from the equation. Whereas the American revolutionaries specifically said, all this is based on our Christian walk with God. And we're going to make sure that that is key to everything. The French Revolution, they said, well, the one thing we don't want in any of this is any kind of religion. And so they actively, we'll talk about that in 100 years, actively removed religion from things. Now, a lot of different historians have said, and when you think about it, that whole horribly bloody, barbarous time is ironically, in part, due to the urbane, nonviolent, witty little attacks on the church of Voltaire. That in France, Voltaire made it so that everybody who feels like they're intelligent knows that Christianity is horrible. So that by the time you get to the revolution and they're overthrowing things and they're saying, we want everybody to think the smart people are now in charge, and one of the things they absolutely have to overthrow is Christianity. Which is why they have prostitutes having sex in the altar of Notre Dame to say, this, we're destroying Christianity in France, and hopefully in the whole world. Because of Voltaire. Sometimes people will ask me, do you really think fill in the blank will go bad? I mean, it's, yes, it may not be specifically Christian, but it's not violent, it's not destructive, it's just wrong-headed. And I'm like, Yes. My understanding of, Christian, of history? Yes, it will go wrong. Everything not based on scripture, everything, every philosophy not based, will wobble out of control and become something ugly. That's, that's my interpretation, but it's my interpretation based on everything that I've seen. Even something with Voltaire, where Voltaire said, nonviolent, be tolerant of everybody, but have no respect for them. You go, yeah, two generations later, kill them, because you have no respect for them. On his deathbed, Voltaire apparently sat up in desperation, called out to his doctor, said, I'm abandoned by God and man. I'll give you half of what I'm worth if you'll give me six more months of life. Then I'll go to hell and you'll go with me, O Christ, O Jesus Christ. What a wonderful way to die. Upon hearing that Voltaire had died, the extremely Catholic Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart wrote that godless fellow and arch rascal Voltaire has croaked. Kick the bucket. Whatever, I mean, in, in German, he picked, a, he picked a word that's very derogatory. You know? He's kicked the bucket. Dead like a dog, like a brute beast. That's his reward. It does, kind of. But he's our 
arguing that Voltaire's attitude got him nowhere. Voltaire was denied a Christian burial because of his cult figure. Even though a couple of friends apparently stuck him into an abbey and had him buried there. But then during the French Revolution, he was dug back up and treated like a hero. His corpse was brought back to Paris and buried in the Pantheon at a huge ceremony in 1791. Big pomp and circumstance. This is a French hero. Over a million people attended the funeral. Do you understand the effect that Voltaire had in France? Sixty years of Christianity is stupid. And that becomes absolutely institutionalized in France. We're still dealing with the rebel effects of this today. Kind of a huge thing. Well, except that I would argue, yes, you're right. France was so extremely Catholic. Um, you would think that this would be the most radical change. Except you can make the argument that it's, it's those kinds of pendulum swings that are the easiest to happen. For me to move the pendulum from here to here takes more effort than for me to move the pendulum from here to here. Because I already have religious extremism, don't I? I got that momentum of religious extremism, and that will just carry the pendulum to the other side. Because now you have something to react against. The hardest people in the world to reach out to are not atheists. It's agnostics. Not people that are sure that there is no God, but people who go, I don't know, I don't care. The people who are absolutely certain that there is no God that like to put blogs up on the web about why there is no God, oh yeah, they have strong feelings about religion, about God. They have faith-based opinions based on relatively little amount of knowledge. They believe that they can speak about the existence of God. They have whole doctrines set up. Oh yeah, these are people that I can deal with. They want to have an argument about God. They have strong beliefs about it. Yep, those are people I can talk to. But the people who go, I genuinely don't care. Those people are hard to interact with. You can make an argument that France is very emphasis. They're very emphasis on absolute control of everything. That the, that the king has absolute control of everything in the entire country all the time and is the absolute head of the church in France in every way and the defender of the faith when they've wrapped up Christianity with you have to have a specific form of Christianity we will kill everybody that has a different form of Christianity and we wrap that up with the control of the state then the reaction against that is dramatic right when you overthrow the state you also overthrow the religion now I'm going to ask you how do you apply that to our situation today? Is there one? In the United States? Can we say that there's any group that has tried to wrap proper understanding of religion with proper understanding of, of politics? To the point where once you start getting disgusted with the politics, you also get disgusted with the religion. Again, I'm not trying to disrespect either the Republicans or the Democrats, but I will say, I've said this before, we tried to make a culture war out of our interpretation of Christianity. And then we lost the culture war. And as a result, that whole understanding of Christianity went by the wayside. Once, once you have evangelical Christianity wrapped with conservative politics, the moment that people get disgusted with conservative politics, then our conservative understanding of Christianity goes out the window. And, and as I said before, uh, a friend of mine who was a strong starch, starch, staunch, not starch, staunch Democrat, left the Democratic Party once he realized that the best tool for figuring out whether or not you would vote Democrat or Republican was one that asked, you don't actually believe the Bible, do you? A series of questions that asked core Christian questions. Now again, I'm not trying to tell you you can't be a Democrat. What I'm just saying is that he sat there and said, you know, it bothers me that my party has apparently, apparently become so based on, because he, he was happy with being a Democrat because he wanted to support the poor. He was happy to be Democrat because he, he believed in several of the social issues. And he still is uncomfortable being a Republican for those very reasons. But he's like, I can't be a part of this party if if the way that they are trying to figure out if people are going to vote Democrat is, you don't actually believe this whole Christianity thing. Do you? And it broke his heart. And I sit there and I'm like, again, please, 
understand, I'm not trying to say Democrats are evil, Republicans are good. Trust me, I would never make that argument. What I'm saying, though, is that when you wrap a proper understanding of religion in with a proper running of the government, once one part of it gets booted, the other part's going to get booted. And people will start wrapping their heads around and their hearts around a rallying cry of, not you, not any part of you. Um, one of the more dangerous things that I heard on talk radio in the last couple of weeks was somebody talking about people getting disgusted with Obama and his approval rating going down, and they said, which opens the door, so this is great, so all this, they start listing all the things that will come in with the next administration, if the next administration is a Republican one. And they're like, all this mindset will come back in, and I'm just like, you're still doing the same thing. You're assuming that disapproval with this administration becomes an embracing of this whole re Republican, conservative, evangelical theology, pro, uh, I don't want to pick on any given party. Stuff in Republicanism that doesn't necessarily always follow with scripture. Let's just leave it that way. All that will come into power again, and everybody will embrace all that all over again. And I'm just like... Well, but, 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 but why do we hope that? Why do we automatically hope that it's all one big, huge painting? That it, it all has to be all interwoven with one another, or else none of it will work. And, 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 and so when I look back at history, I'm like, what happened in France when they so interwove their interpretation of Christianity with their, their government, and then people said, but I'm tired of Louis sitting in Versailles when people are dying by the 600 thousands in the great frost and Louis is saying more firewood for me because my huge palace is getting drafted we're tired of this which also means we're tired of their religion so there's a danger in doing that because you throw the entire thing out and you plant it with something completely different and even if you go oh but we'll take an entire thing and plug it back in and all this is healthy and you go, but it isn't all healthy and we automatically assume that it is because it's all part of one big parcel I'm trying very hard not to be political and pick sides about parties and say, I'm just saying there's an inherent danger in saying it's all one big package. I really appreciate the pietists, but I agree with Lusher, with Lusher that they tended to drift toward the mystical. There were times that they ignored scripture because they wanted to be led by what they felt God was saying, which is why I respect the Swiss, or Swiss, the Swedish pietists for saying maybe we should base our pietism on Bible study. Maybe let's build our covenanticles and have some Bible study here. To say every package is automatically good because I like part of it is inherently dangerous. Anyway, let's stop there. Um, I was going to talk next about pirates. So, I know, everybody was chatting. We had a lot going on. That's fun. Next week we'll talk about pirates and have some fun with that. But, uh, but I would encourage you, to stop and think about some of what we're talking about here, everybody's attacking everybody. Everybody's saying everybody else is doing it wrong. We're starting to, we're starting to have whole movements saying we really should focus on getting a relationship with God. And then we have whole other movements reacting strongly to that, saying, well, whatever you do, don't have a relationship with God. Anytime that anything starts getting promoted healthy, there will always be a backlash in the other direction. And it will always make total sense to both sides of that fight. So stop and think. Stop and pray. Stop and read your, your, your Bible before we just automatically say, well, obviously, we're the ones that are right. Let's see how we can make everybody else agree with us. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity to be part of your family, to be part of your, of your church. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord, to love people well based on your truth. Help us, Lord, to have a relationship with you based on what we know to be true in your word. Help us, Lord, to share truth with other people, not just force them to agree with us. Help us, Lord, to be able to express our Christianity not as a political system, not as an institutional system, but as a relationship. Help us, Lord, to be your people in this broken world, 
to be lights of who you are in their lives. Be glorified, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Next week, pirates. Yeah, I will even try to include the theme for, for you guys.